But your lips, they are cold. And your face, what has happened to your face? And your eyes, your wide staring eyes, and the lie that grows in them. I will return with my shark. She's dead, Richard. I want that coffin opened. But I bargained with Satan. I bargained with him. He took me up, gave me 24 hours. A nightmare construct of polyphonic drone generators and ultrasonic inverters, thick spiraling amplifier coils, and blood-red keyboards. What would you bring to a deserted island? No doubt you've pondered this before, or at least had a moment where you wondered just how long you'd survive if dropped in the middle of nowhere. Tales of shipwrecks are plentiful, but there's an interesting slice of time where many educated, literate people would get shipwrecked and subsequently were able to record their survival. Plenty of movies have been made on the subject, I think it speaks to um, the most primitive type of story, one not marred by analogy or struggling against an invisible concept like society, just man versus nature. Here is a solid problem, and here is how the protagonist overcomes it. If you haven't guessed it, this episode we're looking at two shipwrecks, the Grafton and the Invercold. What makes this story so interesting to me is that the two ships happen to wreck on the same island during the same time frame. We can compare the two groups in how they worked together and overcame obstacles before them. But before we begin their stories, let's acknowledge our sources. The main source used is Joan Durrett's Island of the Lost, Shipwrecked at the Edge of the World. I also pulled information from a couple of journals, which I'll list in the show notes, but really this book does a, it's an incredible job just consolidating everything, making a fairly cohesive timeline. Now let's weigh anchor and start this journey with the Sex and Murder podcast. Our tale today begins with two men in October 1863. Francois Reynal, a Frenchman who had drifted in and out of the goldfields of New South Wales and Victoria for the past 11 years, and had survived two bouts of diseases that had left him bedridden, and an instance where he was blinded for nine days, and a near-fatal cave-in when tunnelling. The other man, Thomas Musgrave, was a seasoned, some would say master, mariner. He had captaining experience and was a gifted navigator. He left home at 16 and did grunt work on the Liverpool to Sydney run until he was given command. In 1857, he settled in Sydney and took on a job captaining a rig on an Australian-New Zealand run. Both men had recently had some bad luck with jobs, though, and were seeking fortune elsewhere. The location is Sydney, and these two men are seeking a ship. A schooner, to be precise, that was small enough to be handled by a team of four, but built sturdy. And she had to be cheap, but ultimately, she needed to be sound. 
These men intended to sail over 2,400 kilometers south-southeast of Australia, as far as the Arctic Polar Front, where the ice-cold water surrounding Antarctica met with the warmer water of the sub-Antarctic. Hitting this belt, they would turn course to sail almost a thousand clicks northeast and find anchorage at Campbell Island. And find a ship these two men did. The Grafton. It was a two-mast topsail schooner, originally used as a freighter of coal from Newcastle to Sydney. Her hold had been modified to be able to carry 75 tons. This meant she was a little pricier than the men had hoped, but she was a perfect fit for their expedition. And what was this expedition? Tin. Glorious tin that was rumoured to be pouring out of the little Campbell Island. No one had actually found any tin there, but there were most certainly large deposits of it. News of this tin was given to them from Musgrave's uncle and his partner, Charles Sharpie. And that is also how he met Renal. See, Sharpie and Renal were acquaintances. They just got together, and these two men, the uncle and Sharpie, that's how they funded this trip. Once the Grafton had been purchased, they began to fit her to their needs. Part of the modifications that had previously been made was a scrap iron covered hull to keep the ship steady when she was empty. Musgrave wanted a bit more weight in there, so he had 10 tons of sandstone jammed up in it. While not the most stable, it would do for what they required. Then came provisions. We had 20 casks of fresh water, over 130 kilos of ship's bread, two barrels of salt pork, 90 liters of molasses, a barrel of salt beef, 90 kilos of ordinary flour, some cartons of sugar, butter, and a bag of beans and peas, five kilos of coffee and tea and some tins, and a couple of barrels of potatoes rounded out the food. Spare canvas, rope, spars were also added for running repairs. They did run into a spot of trouble as they ran short of funds when trying to buy chains for the anchors. They could only manage to get a length of 60 fathoms, that is 30 for each anchor. Not a problem for the port surveyor, who would have been fine with an inadequate 15 fathoms, but it meant they would need to anchor the schooner closer to potential rocky shores increasing the chances of damage to the hull. So with the ship and provisions sorted, we move on to the crew. Dejected from the goldfields, former sailors turned from panning back to the sea, giving Renal plenty of men willing to interview. He found a 20-year-old Englishman, like Musgrave, called George Harris, and a 28-year-old Norwegian named Alexander McLaren, Alec for short. Both men had extensive seafaring records. These four men were to carry out the bulk of the sailing, but Renal also hired a cook, a Portuguese man named Henry, who was running under the last name Brown, but his real name was Forges. He was a little hard on the eyes. At some point when he was younger, he had been stricken with the disease that had sort of eaten away at his nose. When he was 13, he was on a ship working as a cabin boy when he was suddenly hit with this illness. 
and the shipmates quickly became revolted at the sight of him and just kicked him off on the next island that they came across. Thankfully, the Samoan inhabitants were kind to him and nursed him back to health, but he hightailed it out of there on the next passing ship that came within swimming distance of the island. Whilst going through the final preparations, Reynal had himself a sense of foreboding that something felt like it would go wrong. He made Sharpie and Uncle Musgrave promise them, promise them that they would send a search party if the schooner wasn't back when expected, four months from departure. And even though he wasn't expecting any trouble, Renal packed in his kit the double-barreled rifle that had served him during his time in the goldfields, along with a few pounds of gunpowder, some lead bricks for making bullets, and some percussion caps. He didn't intend on bringing the gun at first, but as he was leaving his boarding house to head to the ship, he, he just grabbed it thinking he might make a sport of duck hunting in his downtime. That would prove to be one of their most valuable tools. It's November 12th, 1863. It proved to be a trying time for the crew of the Grafton. That morning, they headed out from the harbour entrance, and as they moved into the open sea, they were hit by an icy south wind that threw the ship around. It was quickly rectified, but that night the wind died completely. Reynal wrote, that night held a splendid sight, a meteor shower that lasted all night. Morning broke to a calm, dead sea. Still no wind. It wasn't until that afternoon when the wind picked up, and boy did it. It heralded purple-black clouds. It took two days for the hurricane to reach its full potential, and it hit on the 18th of November, as the sky went pitch black. It hit them with dizzy swiftness, wrote Renal. Every moment they were furrowed by vivid lightnings. The rain, icy rain, lashes and smites us. At intervals, the thunder mingles its formidable voice in a thousand ominous sounds. Eleven at night, Renal took over steering and kept her on course for the most part, but had some trouble when he was startled by a loud crack of thunder and a sudden wind that whipped the rudder free. A huge breaker, as high as the mast, hit them, and the loose sandstone under the deck slid as a solid mass, pitching the Grafton onto her side. They waited, hoping it would correct in a moment, but the waves hit her relentlessly and she stayed mostly on her starboard side. Thanks to the way the scrap iron had been added to the hull, the ship managed to stay steady pitch to one side and not roll completely belly up. By the time the waves eased, it was dawn, and the Grafton managed to right herself onto her keel. But still the storm raged on. They were stuck at the mercy of the weather until they could raise the sails on the 21st of November. By then, they were off course by some 250 kilometers and wouldn't glimpse land until nine days later through a thick fog. Sunlight broke through the fog and the men found they couldn't see land that they had spotted just hours earlier. 
Resuming course as best as they could, they approached Campbell from the west. Dawn of December 2nd, they turned northeast and sailed past the bluffs until they reached the head of the bay, dropping anchor in five fathoms of water at 11 a.m. Until the icy rain and wind, the weather was warm. No sooner had they filled the sails when Musgrave and Renal were out of the boat exploring the shore. First thing the following morning, former gold miner Renal and Captain Musgrave were prospecting up for their mythical tin. Up and down the shoreline they went, weaving inland. Not the slightest trace of tin ore could be seen. They intended to continue the next day, but Renal awoke to a fever that left him delirious by nightfall. He didn't get any better over the next three weeks that they were camped at Campbell Island. He got so bad at one point that Musgrave, rather grimly, just dug the poor dude a grave, waiting for him to die. Well, he didn't sit idle at least. With Renal out, Musgrave dragged Alec with him to look for the tin. Finally, they accepted that there just wasn't any tin on the island. Reluctant, though, to go back with nothing to show for it, they decided their best course of action was to do some sealing, gather all the fur pelt and oil that they could hopefully make a little bit of a profit after covering all their costs. Thing is, this wasn't a terrible idea, since seals were actually a big industry during the first two decades of the 19th century. However, overhunting led to a drastic drop in seal numbers. And the crew witnessed evidence of this, since there were actually no seals or sea lions at Campbell Island, despite all their maps saying otherwise. So, Captain Musgrave told the men as soon as Renal was fit to travel, they would just go straight back home to Sydney. They weighed anchor December 29th, and Musgrave, as they travelled in the open sea, decided to sail by the Auckland Islands in a small detour to assess their seal population there. Since this is the locale that we'll be at for a while, let's talk about the Auckland Islands. It's two islands, the bigger one called Auckland, the smaller one, Adams. It's a remote area, so remote that many European explorers completely missed it until it was first sighted 18th of August 1806 by Abraham Bistro, captaining the whale ship Ocean. His ship was full of oil and he didn't even drop anchor, only taking a moment to name the group after Lord Auckland. The following year, he returned with the whale ship Sarah and anchored at the northern part of Auckland Island and called it Sarah's Bosom. Formally claiming the island, he released some pigs for hunting parties that might chill there in the future and then promptly departed. With it officially on the maps though, it was visited fairly frequently in the surge of seal hunting. It practically wiped out the seals from the area within a decade and ships had stopped calling in by 1823. 1823 saw the schooner Henry, captained by Robert Johnson, no relation to the blues musician, reportedly took 13,000 
fine furs from the North Auckland Island. Another rush as people capitalized on the return seal population until again people stopped visiting due to the lack of seals. But it wasn't totally avoided. Whalers in New Zealand waters would occasionally stop there to replenish wood, fresh water, and edible vegetables. In 1840, Gunbrig Porpoise, part of a US exploration expedition, called in and left three days later, but not before the crew roamed around the island planting a few onion patches to complement the turnip, carrots, and potatoes that the former French whaling crew had left. As the porpoise was leaving, a French explorer arrived to find a Portuguese whaling ship on the other side of the island looking out for whales. Late 1840, James Clark Ross arrived with the HMS Terra and HMS Erebus as a pit stop to build an observatory. HMS Terra and HMS Erebus would later be lost while under the command of Sir John Franklin, and I so very much want to do an episode about this expedition. But back to this story, James Clark Ross and his party released even more pigs, as well as rabbits and hens, and planted some gooseberries and raspberries and strawberries and more turnips and even some cabbage. They then dismantled the observatory that they built and sailed away for Campbell Island. When Ross got back to Hobart, he wrote to the authorities suggesting that the Auckland Islands might make good capital penal colony, since New South Wales and Tasmania were in talks of ending the penal transportation. This idea was rejected, but they entertained the idea of making a whaling settlement there. And that's how, in 1849, 150 men, women, and children were sent to set up a village called Hardwick. It was a hard and difficult life for the men and women children there. We have recordings of murder-suicides brought on from this sheer isolated location and terrible weather. It lasted three years before the village was completely abandoned, the Maori sailors following suit soon after. And this is how the island was left uninhabited by man until the Grafton. Wednesday the 30th of December began with a fresh breeze and dark cloudy weather, writes Musgrave. They saw the Auckland Islands at 6pm to the northwest, roughly 50 clicks. He also reports Renal being better in health than when they left Campbell's Island. They were set to make good time when a squall from the west forced the Grafton into a southward course, in an effort to avoid the reefs. Moving into the new year, the weather was pleasant. 8am, all sails set. And 9am, made Auckland Islands again. It was the coast of the southernmost island, still sitting 50 or so kilometres away. The schooner passed the southwestmost end of Adams Island, and the eastern coast of Auckland Island could be seen. At 3pm, they entered the harbour at Port Carnley. And they did indeed find seals that had been missing from their last island. Sailing south along the coast, they witnessed more and more seals just hanging out. The plan was to stop at the island, fill up their fresh water, take some seal furs, and make haste to Sydney where they could reprovision the ship and return with 
30 or so men who could pitch up a camp and hunt until they were filthy, filthy rich. Musgrave found great anchorage in the northern arm of the harbour, and would have stopped there if they had the chain length to do so. Part of the reason it was so safe was the depth put the ship above any treacherous rocks or reefs, but the chain that they had to skimp on was not quite long enough. So the Grafton sailed on. To make things worse, everywhere they sounded was too deep, and the wind died down until they were essentially floating with the tides. As you will see though, the weather doesn't stay in a single condition for long at the Auckland Islands. Thunder and rain, the breeze picked back up, only to die down again by morning. Instead of navigating with the ship, Musgrave sent Alec and George out on a small boat to scout. They returned with bad news. Everywhere was too deep. The wind was once again starting to rise. A fresh storm loomed. Quote, brought up on the northeast side of the harbour in six fathoms of water, close to shore, about 10 or 12 miles from the sea, Musgrave wrote. It was shallow enough to weigh anchor, but it was a little too close to the rocks for comfort. It was Saturday, January 2nd, and the Grafton was anchored in the harbour, fighting against the gale that had gathered. Each gust of wind pitched the ship's head down. At seven in the evening, there was silence. Pausing to muster all its strength, the storm let out an endless stream of solid wind and rain. The starboard chain on the Grafton snapped. The schooner crept towards the rocks. For the next two hours, the wind only increased. Hope filled the crew when the Grafton jarred. The anchor caught on the bottom and it floated where it was for the next hour, being battered by the relentless waves. But it wasn't to last. Whatever the anchor caught on gave way and the Grafton made for the rocks with nothing to stop her. Midnight, January 3rd, 1864. The Grafton hits rock and the wind and waves drag her hull over the reefs. Within 15 minutes, water had filled up to the top of the cabin table. With haste, the men gathered all they could, provisions, tools, and personal items. Day broke, and the sea was still high. They saw the boat, lashed to the side of the ship, was thankfully undamaged. Taking two coils of rope, Musgrave tied one to the iron ring on the side of the ship, and the other one to the stern of the boat. Alec took the second rope, and tied one end to the bow. Alec, being the strongest swimmer they had, didn't hesitate to dive into the sea and make for the beach. Not directly, though. He was smart. He knew that trying to make a dash would be too risky. Instead, he took his time, meter by meter, zigzagging to rocks protruding from the surface. He made it to the beach and tied the rope securely to the tree. Now they had a bridge of sorts with the boat marking the halfway point. Renal, whose condition had improved since Campbell Island but was still pretty rough, was tied to Musgrave's back and the crew moved to the beach. They made a trip back several times to make sure they got any completely necessary equipment required. They set up a makeshift tent from a spare sail 
and catalogued their stock. 50 kilos of hard bread, a kilo of tea, a kilo of coffee, five kilos of sugar, a few straps of salted meat, as well as some mustard and pepper for seasoning. Musgrave himself had a couple of kilos of tobacco, which he immediately separated and shared evenly amongst the men. But that wasn't everything. Strapped to the deck were bags and chests containing salt for curing, navigational instruments, charts, clothes, Renal's gun, and related paraphernalia, utensils such as knives, forks, plates, and an iron pot for rendering. There was also some assorted foodstuffs, potatoes, and a handful of pumpkin seeds. Harry, the cook, had himself some long matches. Thankfully, but they were damp, and several crumbled before one caught. But they soon had a fire, and some hot water by way of a kettle that they brought ashore. Revitalized after some tea and biscuits, the men spread in every direction. They were looking for a cave, a grotto, anything that would help them get out of the wind. Renal was left at the tent. Hopelessness hit him pretty hard, and he realized that the nearest inhabited island was over 500 kilometers away. Back when he was younger, Renal had somewhat of a religious experience when he was first out at sea. He had an overwhelming sense of infinite, and his, quote, soul was penetrated with a grave and solemn enthusiasm. The thought of the supreme being, of the author, the lord of the universe, was present in my soul. And ever since then, Renal had been a pious man, and it was through prayer now that he was able to weather his current situation. The men exploring had their own troubles too. Thick, twisted trees lined the beach, spongy moss and springy ferns wrapped around their feet and legs. There was not a cave to be found near the cliffs. Returning to camp, George broke down, claiming it would have been better to die drowning in the wreck than to slowly starve on a random island in the middle of nowhere. Renal reminded him, and the rest of the crew, that Sharpie had promised to send a search party if they didn't get back to Sydney within four months. Musgrave pointed out that they were in the incorrect place, what provisions that they managed to save would run out long before those four months were up. For Renal, there was no point waiting around for it to happen. They had to be productive. Renal knew the importance of being productive. They needed to get out of the quickly shifting elements first. So he reminded the crew that on the wreck were planks, rope, and canvas. They could build a hut. But for that night, it was the wet tent. They detached the sails from the yards and booms, dismantled the top masts, and got a good supply of boards. They salvaged some tools, a couple of pickaxes, a couple of spades, an awl, a gimlet, and a hammer. Then they went on the hunt for a better place for their hut. They picked a spot, a little further down, near the creek with a strong flow, fresh clean water for drinking, cleaning, and washing. The surrounding trees served as a good source of wood and would help break the wind. They cleared this area and leveled it. 
The tent was moved there temporarily, and a fire was kindled near the entrance in an effort to drive away the tiny midges and larger blowflies. The first night at this spot, they were awoken by crashing, howling, and general roars and squeals. It seems local sea lions had taken an interest in the new visitors. The crew armed themselves with picks and whatever club-like objects they could find within reach to defend themselves. But they realized the sea lions weren't all that close, and most of the noise was coming way over from two bulls that were battling. Renal writes a pretty gruesome account of the battle. He was seemingly awestruck by the tusks and how they would just rip huge wounds into each other. George and Harry threw some torches at the fighting bull's direction, and it kind of just scared them away from the very vulnerable tent. The second day was a fine day, as far as there was no rain this morning. The crew went out looking for food, specifically sea lions. Everyone except Renal went out and bagged themselves a sea lion, each carrying a quarter back to camp. Musgrave, taking George and Alec with him, went to the wreck and retrieved the chests, the large iron pot, and the rest of the provisions. He hoped that he might make a garden. Reynal and Harry didn't sit around idly. They made themselves useful, taking down the tent, blazing a fire over the ground, both to dry it out and to help sanitize the flies that burrow down into the dirt, but also kind of got confused with the dirt with their clothes and blankets and left clusters of maggots. Gross stuff. They also worked on the carcass quarters, roasting them slowly over a fire until it was about ready the time Musgrave and his party arrived. The taste was not good. It was tough and oily meat. But they had food, they had a full stomach, and on that full stomach, Renal started oiling his rifle, which was covered in spots of rust. The others spread the items out, drying them and taking inventory. The chronometer was safe, which meant that they had accurate timekeeping. They stashed away the dried items not too soon, as that night it rained again, which made them all the more determined to finish and, and weatherproof a hut as soon as possible. The following day, the crew went to the beach and retrieved the boat, stowing it a little inland so it was safe, and scouted the area some more. They figured the best place for the hut would be on top of a nearby hill, roughly 12 meters above sea level. It was close to the tent, to the creek, the beach, and the wreck. During the time they were constructing the hut, the sea lions were curious enough to come right up to the front of the tent, and dumb enough not to learn that that often meant death, as the crew butchered them as required. They found that the bulls tasted horrendous, but the females and the calves, they tasted a little bit more like lamb. Renal got a chance to use his gun to fend off a bull that got a little too curious about the tent. As Musgrave, George, and Alec worked on the hut, Renal, who was still not 100%, mended clothes and helped Harry with the cooking and tending to the fire. Quote, we have all worked very hard, records Musgrave towards the end of the first week. 
He had been so busy that he hadn't been keeping his journal every day. Thankfully, Renal made up for it, having more time than Musgrave to write. Quote, he's much better and talks of going to work tomorrow. It wasn't until Sunday, 10th of January, before they saw the sun again. The men were elated to have some vitamin D. Their spirits were raised further as Musgrave found a Bible tucked away in his chest, and the crew requested that he read them some passages. They gathered around as Musgrave read the gospel according to Matthew. The men burst into tears. The trees that grew on the island were twisted and gnarled. It would be practically impossible to make planks of wood out of them. Renal's experience in the goldfields proved quite valuable to them again. He had learned to make these small huts out of tree branches, fortifying them with clay and small stones. Within a few more days, he would even be well enough to help with the labour. I'll save you the measurements and the process of building, just know that they did it properly. Foundations, crossbeams, rafters, a doorway, some windows, a chimney, the works. While building, those charged with hunting found some more game. Small birds called widgeons, basically ducks. But these only offered a little treat every now and then, and the bulk of their diet consisted of sea lion. The men worked themselves ragged. Their hands showed signs of wear and tear, and the biting insects didn't help. Quote Renal, Every moment one or another of us, tormented by the intolerable bites and stings and pricks, would leave off his work, throw his tool to the ground, and rub himself strenuously against the nearest post. Exactly two weeks of shipwreck, Sunday the 17th of January, the weather went downhill again, only for it two days later to be perfectly fine. And it was on these fine days that Musgrave chose to give the men a vacation. Launching the boat, they went down to the harbour, planting flags with bottles that held messages in them. On the odd chance that people might stumble upon those flags and They didn't see them or anything like that. They enjoyed the sights of the small rocky islands that held sunbathing sea lions. Renal wrote that they were overwhelmed by the beauty of the area. Rutting season was over, and they witnessed several fierce battles between bulls. Thankfully, none of them cared about the men. Though they did have some trouble, as they rounded the south of the island, two young, smaller bulls, Dared to try and take their oars, the men beat them off and Alec was particularly wild as he took on the larger one, slamming it in the head with an iron boat hook. After some supper at the southern beach, they explored the area and caught more ducks before making back to the boat and sailing to their beach, which they had named, quite fittingly, Shipwreck Cove. With such a nice day and high spirits, they were testing fate. The next day, rain just pissed down on them, but it didn't stop them from building their furnace and chimney for the hut. A deep hearth was dug and lined with stones, but they didn't have suitable clay to seal it all in. Renal pulled through for them again. He just got up and made cement. 
Like, dude just made cement. During the night, he collected shells and converted them into calcium oxide by heating them in embers and leaving them to roast. With a source of calcium oxide, he blended the lime with sand. Renal quickly found that prolonged working with the lime with his bare hands wasn't ideal. He suffered some minor burns to his fingertips, which he dressed with seal oil until healed. But after all that, he had cement. To go with the hearth, the crew salvaged some copper that covered the Grafton's hull. Low tide allowed Alec and George to swim out and strip the thin sheets from the side of the wreck. Though they could only work in two-hour chunks to accommodate for the tide, they soon had enough copper to line the chimney. Musgrave took responsibility to keep the food stock up, and so he frequently went foraging. He and Alec tried some fishing, but with little success, at least in the sea. At the creek, they managed to catch a few tiny, tiny fishes that, while delicious, had very little to them. In addition to exploring for food, Musgrave would take longer excursions by himself, taking his surveying tools, making charts, and recording all sorts of information. He was determined to map the harbour and the surrounding territory to the best of his ability. Plus, he hoped that the maps might be of use to any future poor souls who might wreck upon the island. And that's how it came about on Sunday 24th of January, Musgrave was alone, climbing a mountain on the northeast of camp. Upon reaching the top, he was bitten by the black dog. You see, there wasn't a sail in the horizon. In fact, there was very little in the horizon. Dejected, he made his way back to camp, but not without noting two potential resources he came across. Two days later, he was out again, this time with company. He made a small error when the rifle failed to fire, and he went to reload it. As he rested the butt of the gun on the ground, it just went off, sending the lead ball through his hat, missing his nose by mere millimetres. On February 1st, he was back out alone again, this time on the boat. Bad weather forced him back to the camp, however, as he was passing the wreck. The weather forced the boat's bow to hit the side of the grafted. Now, the boat was damaged, but thankfully not beyond repair. <laughs> the cabin that the Grafton crew had made was adequate, but not perfect. They solved the wind howling through by stitching in the last of the canvas. It was February 2nd, 1864, and they had been shipwrecked for 31 days. By the end of February, they had fashioned themselves a door and had a boarded floor. Again, thanks to Renal's time on the goldfields, they fashioned a ditch that surrounded the hut to take the water runoff. Renal had seen way too many stick huts fail as the ground turned muddy and gave out. They also lashed together strong tufts of grass that grew on the nearby cliffs, thatching the roof as best they could. When it was too wet or dark or windy to thatch, the men made themselves furniture. Musgrave wrote that they made five stretches out of poles and canvas, slinging them six feet above the floor so that they could be easily moved and worked around during the day. 
Renal recounts that they were more like cots, but with the description he writes, there would have been so little room to move once the cots were out that it was, it's more likely that Musgrave's setup was the more truer one. Especially when you consider the fact that they had made a dining table with two long benches and a captain's chair that was little more than a keg at the head of the table. Musgrave also had himself a small table made from an old chest salvaged from the Grafton's cabin, where he wrote his weekly updates every Sunday. In it held the chronometer, and hanging above the workstation was his barometer and thermometer. On the small shelf that they hung sat a copy of the Bible, Milton's Paradise Lost, and a couple of other assorted novels. When Musgrave's small pot of ink ran out, they utilized the only resource that they had at the moment, an abundance of seals. Seal blood was apparently a good substitute for ink. The lamps that illuminated the hut also used seals, specifically their oil. In the rafters, they made a small loft that Renal took over for medicines. Ordinary flour rolled into balls when damp was used to treat diarrhea, as well as the last of their mustard applied to the skin to draw out blisters and ease pains such as headaches. To round all this out, they managed to salvage some panes of glass from the schooner and wedged them into the holes they had cut for windows. There was initially an unspoken divide between half the cabin, three sailors on one side and Renal and Musgrave to the other. But it was agreed by all parties that the shipboard ranking system just wasn't going to work out here in the wilderness. And they settled on good old-fashioned democracy. Each man was considered as important as the next, and everyone had a chance to speak and to vote. Musgrave writes, quote, It is true that I no longer hold any command over them, but I share everything that has been saved from the wreck in common with them. And I have worked as hard as any of them, trying to make them comfortable. And I think gratitude ought to prompt them to continue willing and obedient. Though he was a little grumbly about not officially being the man, he obliged. I believe this is probably one of the reasons why this team worked so well together and lasted as long as they did. We'll see a nice contrast in the future. But for now, even if the men in Sydney sent ships out for them, it would be October at the earliest before they could even think about being found. Renal wrote his idea, quote, was that we choose among us not a master or superior but a head, a chief, a man who would maintain discipline, educate quarrels, and give out daily tasks. Everyone agreed to this, but the sailors added another clause. If the man chosen was proving to be unworthy, they could just straight up fire him and another election would be held. This was all recorded on a blank page in Musgrave's Bible, and the men clasped their hands over it, each promising to hold the provisions of this contract. They then held their very first election. Renal proposed Musgrave, and it was a unanimous yes. He was excused from cooking that week for his other duties, though it wasn't exactly required, as Renal had taken 
cooking over making himself busy, just learning the ropes of being a cook, essentially. From the limited ingredients that they had, he was able to bring four courses to a meal. But there was a little bit of a problem with his cooking. Not with his cooking, but with access to ingredients and stuff like that. This limited diet began to affect their health. Now, we all know, out at sea, pirates, etc., etc., scurvy. The potatoes that Musgrave packed to combat this had been planted in the hopes of creating a sustainable source of food, but that crop had failed, and the pumpkin seeds too failed to take to the soil. The bread had since run out, and the men were running on salted meat and fat. Absolutely no carbohydrates. Everyone had bouts of dizziness and had to combat like chronic bowel issues. The high-calorie diet, but lack of carbohydrates, sugars, and vitamins, meant they were shedding the pounds. Thankfully, though, they managed to combat this with the discovery of a plant the crew named Saccharine. Braving the chance to nibble at the plants, none had been poisonous, thank goodness, but they did taste pretty rank. Renal shredded the white starchy stem of the sacchary plant, patted them into cakes, and fried them off in sea oil. It was noted to be delicious, but that might have just been the change of taste and having something else other than seal meat. Be it good or bad, it was different. These cakes served as a substitute to bread and potatoes, and they actually contained a high amount of sugar. Despite the stems being the only thing eaten by the men, this plant is entirely edible. The hairy stalks could be stewed to taste like celery. The leaves could be boiled and eaten, though they reportedly tasted like wet paper. And boiling or baking the root made it taste just like a turnip. Now the root, Renal did use, but he didn't use it as food. What he made out of it was traditionally made by James Cook's crew to help combat scurvy and was made from spruce tips and molasses and wort. The Grafton crew had neither wort nor molasses, but the saccharine roots were so high in sugar they weren't required. When boiled down and left to ferment, it became a drink more sustaining than water and a good source of vitamins. Renal made sea beer. The sailors tried to goad Renal into distilling it further into brandy. Renal thought this was a very bad idea since he knew what hard liquor did to men. But a man after my own heart, he did it anyway just to see if he could. He simmered the beer in a kettle, pouring the cold water onto a cloth so the alcohol condensed into a barrel and then dripped into a container. He had a taste and declared his project a success, and then immediately dismantled all of it and told the sailors, nah, it failed, you're just going to have to live with the beer. And with that, it should be said that it wasn't all 100% hard work all the time for the men. Musgrave describes, quote, I have adopted a measure for keeping them in order and subjugation, which I find work admirably. And it also acts beneficially on my own mind. That is, teaching school in the evenings. 
and reading prayers and reading and expounding the scriptures on Sunday to the best of my ability. Renal's account says that it was his idea, so we'll split the difference and say it evolved without any specific intention. Much like the chief of the group, none was above the other. Henry and Alec learned to read and write, and in turn taught Portuguese and Norwegian. Renal taught French and mathematics. He records, quote, These new relations still further united us by alternatively raising and lowering us above one above the other, they really kept us on a level and created a perfect equality among us. There were also games as well. Whittled wooden solitaire, chess, dominoes. Renal even made a deck of cards, which he thought would be safe since the men had naught to bet with. Much like the grog, he quickly destroyed the deck. You see, Musgrave was a very bad card player, and that wouldn't have been too bad if he wasn't also a really bad sore loser. The men also had time away from all of this, just general leisure time, where they weren't expected to perform any duties. Harry caught himself a parakeet and was curious enough to hang around the hut. He weaved twigs into a nice little cage where he captured the small pets. Quote, we feed them on seeds of the saccharine plant, which at first she pounded carefully and then afterwards mixed in with a little seal's flesh roasted and minced into very small pieces. While one died in their care, the other two they had captured thrived. They grew until they were strong enough to destroy the bars of their cage, but by this time they were tame enough to be left to roam around the hut freely. They could be found at night sleeping at the foot of Harry's bed. Renal writes that they would make a fuss if their water dish wasn't filled, and after they bathed, they would sit in front of the fire to dry themselves. A little bit of a sad story, story though. Harry accidentally set a heavy iron pot on one, crushing the poor bird to death, and the other soon died without its mate. With Renal taking up the cooking also brought his strict routine that the household kept to match his. When he was up at 6am to cook breakfast, then the men were woken as well to begin their morning chores. First task, collecting firewood. They had found gnarled wood that surrounded them, which they called ironwood, that would burn hot and with little smoke. It also happened to blunten their equipment very quickly. Seeing the need for sharpening, Renal found some stones on the beach that would work as whetstones and took a trip to the wreck to procure a block of sandstone. He also pocketed a loose iron pin that had rusted free. He heated this pin until it was a fierce red and then hammered it out until he made himself a cold chisel. With the chisel, he made the sandstone into a knife grinder's grindstone. Their blades weren't the only things wearing out quickly. Their clothes had been ripped and torn apart from the moment that they swam from the wreck of the beach weeks ago. They wore little more than rags, and they stank. Sailcloths could be made into new clothes, but the current clothes couldn't just be rinsed. Rancid oil clung to them. They needed soap. And who was the one when set his mind to anything, achieved it, Renal. 
So he told the men he was going to make some soap. And they laughed in his face. Could he conjure it from thin air? Because there was no way, no way he would be able to make soap. When Musgrave, George and Henry were out climbing the mountains, Renal gathered himself some firewood into the heap on the beach. Once he had a substantial pile, he heaped on some dry seaweed and as many shells that he could find and crush. He then put a flame to it and let it burn out. The next morning, he had himself a pile of cool ashes. After drilling some holes in the bottom of a cask, he propped it up into the air on some wood blocks and put another container underneath. He then filled the cask with ash and ran water through it. The concoction that was collected had been infused with, quote, soda, potash, and a certain quantity of lime in the solution. This solution, he would boil and add in sea oil. Now, initially, it smelled rank, but after he poured it into a mold and let it dry, he had himself bars of soap. And so, Monday became washing day. All other tasks were shuffled to other days as the men spent Monday scrubbing. Their clothes would be soaked, the dining table and cooking table were were well scoured, and the floor was mopped. The men themselves washed not on the Monday, but on Saturday evening in a large pot that sat near the fire that heated the water. Even after multiple cleanings, their clothes held stains, and they were running out of sailcloth. So high on their priority of list was finding an alternative source of fabric. Obviously, it would be the seal skins that they gather with ease. It took a little trial and error. They stretched the skins and scraped all the fat off, then coated the skins with lye every few hours. And once dry, they took them to a block of sandstone and just started pounding the shit out of them until they were supple enough. They made replacement clothes, of course, but they found this method worked very well to make warm bed coverings. Now, the only thing it didn't replace was their boots. Moccasins made from seal skin were terrible and shredded quickly over the rocks. No matter what Renal tried, he could not get these stupid shoes to last. Pin in that because we will return to boots in a moment. For now though, we fast forward to March. The storms have arrived. Westerly gales that this time brought with it sleet and ice. Sea lions began to thin out and were sometimes impossible to find at all. This led the men to dare the potential reefs to venture out to the dotted islands that surrounded them. They made do taking only as little as they thought they could get away with in case their numbers completely dwindled. These trips also got them ducks, sometimes, to supplement their diet. The sun rose on March 12th, like it does every other day. It was the four-month mark since the Grafton had left Sydney. Help was surely to be searching for them soon. March 18th, George stayed back as the rest of the men went hunting again, trying another island. They found, quote, traces of a small and ancient encampment, 
evidently an old whaler station. Renal found himself a rusted file when exploring and kept his little treasure. The hunting trip went as expected, uh, except for Renal capping a seal that tried to get rowdy and jump onto the boat. It scared the rest of the nearby seals away, but I have a feeling the men were happy to see them fleeing in this instance. This particular trip, they were left with little more meat than they needed at that moment, so they threw the remains in some salt that they had brought with them to cure. The next morning, they launched to check on the flag. The pole was on quite a lean, and the canvas that they had made the actual flag of was gone, ripped off by heavy winds. The message was still in the bottle, but the bottle had sort of rolled a little bit of ways. Bad weather made them hightail it out of there before they could fix the flag. And it wasn't until two weeks later before they could go back to fix it up, thanks to a series of really bad storms. When they did get back, they didn't just correct the pole and put another flag on it. No, they put up a board, a proper sign, and painted a big N on it, indicating that they were north of the island. They kept the bottle there, but the N should allow any potential rescuers to make towards their direction without actually needing to land and extensively search for them. That is, if someone saw it. Even the most keen and desperate whalers wouldn't be running their ships out this way until at least October. Quote, The days are getting short, wrote Musgrave on April 10th and long, stormy, dreary weather is before us, without the slightest prospect of getting away. Moving into winter, the storms were more frequent and worse. The castaways had finally completed the thatching, though, and the cabin was, quote, very warm and comfortable. On April 12th, they were forced to hunt in terrible weather, when the provisions had become dangerously low. Alec and Harry left the cabin first as Renal and Musgrave gathered their stuff to follow them. Alec and Harry rushed back in, yelling that they had seen dogs. One was a fine shepherd's dog, white and black, and the other one was smaller, like a cross between like a bulldog or a mastiff. They tried to coax them out close enough to tie a rope around them, but the dogs were a little too skittish and just took off into the scrub. This was the only time that these men saw these dogs. Though on occasion they would come across evidence of kills, shredded carcasses, and blood-soaked sand. Time passed to May. The weather remained bad. 10th of May, 1864. Musgrave wrote, It is my anniversary, 32nd of my birth. I have made it to a point some years to pledge my mother on this day, a bottle of good old port. Outside, icy rain poured heavily from the northwest. It just so happened on this day, Musgrave's 32nd birthday, 37 kilometers to the northwest of the cabin, sailed a Scottish rigger called the Invercold. Her keel was being ripped open by an Auckland Island reef. And it is with the shipwreck of the Invercold that we end this episode to be picked back up 
as she's ripped apart by the reef and rocks. Thank you for listening to the Sex and Murder podcast.